Welcome to the Hospital Finance Podcast, your go-to source for information and insights that can help you stay ahead of the challenges impacting healthcare finance. And now, the host of the Hospital Finance Podcast, Michael Passanate. Hi, this is Mike Passanate, and welcome back to the award-winning Hospital Finance Podcast. No hospital likes to get audited by their payers, but today I'm joined by Laura Legg, who is the Director of Revenue Integrity Services here at Bessler. And she is going to talk to us about how you can build confidence coding the top six diagnoses that most payers audit. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Mike. I'm happy to be here. So, Laura, you recently did a webinar uh, on this particular topic, and you focused on six diagnoses. How did you determine uh, which six to include? Well, Mike, I really um, thought about the denials that I myself have worked on in the past, and I also read a lot of literature about what people are receiving. So the six that I chose were encephalopathy, acute blood loss anemia, malnutrition, pleural effusion, atelectasis, and acute respiratory failure. And those six diagnoses really are some really what I term MVPs in the coding world along with many other diagnoses that we call MCCs or CCs. So these are diagnoses that are complications, major complications and comorbidities that do increase uh, DRG payment. Another reason I chose them, Mike, is that they're very high volume and high risk as far as documentation is concerned, and they have certainly captured the attention of our payers. Now, noticeably, the diagnosis of sepsis was not included in my list, which is probably the most uh, reviewed diagnoses that we have uh, that payers are looking at. And the reason that I didn't include sepsis is it takes an entire hour to talk about sepsis with its three different definitions, its clinical indicators, and really all of the risk reduction processes that hospitals do right now for this very expensive and life-threatening condition. So maybe that'll be a web, a webinar that we do in the future. Yeah, I'm sure that would be of, of interest to everyone out there. Um, Laura, in, in, how would you say that uh, these different diagnoses actually catch the attention of payers? Well, I think they caught the attention of payers due to the key words, clinical validation. And clinical validation um, is an important key component of being able to document, to satisfy everyone, including payers, for these diagnosis codes. Coders are instructed to sign a diagnostic code according to physician documentation. But sometimes the discussion and questions about what is documented as a diagnosis and the clinical evidence of it or lack of clinical evidence to support it can often end without resolution. And that really leaves coders in a bit of a pickle as they try to discern if a code can be applied or not. So if the documentation doesn't fully and clearly support these six diagnoses, this is where a clinical validation query can come in. If it is billed without this, the payer can often suggest removing the code and decreasing the DRG payment with what we've termed a clinical validation denial. And Laura, are there clear documentation guidelines for physicians to follow? You know, Mike, there really aren't. Um, There are some guidelines. Now, the Centers of Medicare and Medicaid Services do reinforce that all documentation has to be consistent with other parts of the medical record. And if an 
entry uh, by the physician contradicts with documentation found elsewhere, clarification is needed. And that's where a query or question comes in. With the initiation of clinical validation audits, um, that now extends that instruction to diagnostic statements and their correlating clinical criteria. So often, physicians are unaware of the precise terminology required to allow proper coding, and sometimes coders are not always properly trained and may not recognize diagnoses that need to be clarified before billing. So successfully bridging this divide depends on having clinical documentation specialists working with the physicians and also educating coders so they have the knowledge to discern whether or not to query. Laura, can you further explain the term clinical criteria for us? I can, Mike. Clinical criteria is just really simply the signs, the symptoms, and the test results that define a diagnosis. So really, if you have a diagnosis, um, say, of pneumonia, you'd expect to see documented certain signs and symptoms. Um, you'd expect to see the results of a chest X-ray. So those are all clinical criteria that would validate the diagnosis of pneumonia. Now, coders and CDI staff should evaluate all the documentation in the chart and the data when, when necessary, and then query a conflict or inconsistency, including discrepancies between clinical criteria and physician documentation. Physicians must support their diagnostic statements or um, diagnostic documentation with clinical criteria and how it is met or not met. Laura, what tools can hospitals use to ensure data accuracy and improved clinical documentation? Well, Mike, in our industry, one of the most valuable tools for ensuring that is an effective and compliant physician query process. So CMS recognizes and supports the appropriateness of physician queries, but they do have some rules around those. They can't be leading in nature, and they can't introduce new information into the medical record. So CMS only allows the use of physician query to the extent that it provides clarification and is consistent with other medical record documentation. Now, there's a couple of uh, professional organizations that have established industry standards, and those are the American Health Information Management Association and the Association for Clinical Documentation Improvement Specialists. So those are two really good industry resources for query practices. Laura, during the webinar, you talked about what to do if your organization uh, receives a payer denial. And of course, hospitals are, are doing uh, all kinds of things to try to reduce that risk up front, uh, but they're still getting audited for some of these high-risk, high-volume um, diagnoses. What do you make of that? They are, and we've all been through this, Mike, and I know as an HIM director, I have had a pile of denials on my desk, and it can be really overwhelming. But as payer audits have expanded over the last decade, um, there's been increasingly more emphasis on the use of correct codes, uncode specificity, and appropriate clinical criteria to support the codes. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Um, one of the reasons is as ICD-10 increases in specificity, we get more codes and they become more specific. Our documentation must change and become more specific along with those codes. Another thing to point out really, Mike, that is important is U.S. payers paid out billions of dollars last year for claims with a diagnosis 
of those I have in my webinar, as well as a diagnosis of sepsis, heart failure, pneumonia. So it's no wonder that they're reviewing those records to make sure they're getting proper codes and DRG, and DRG assignments so that they know their money's being well spent. Makes sense. Um, Laura, could you just take a few minutes and summarize uh, how you think hospitals can lower their risk of payment denials? Absolutely. Um, Mike, accurate and compliant documentation is a game changer. So it really is a top priority for every facility out there. Um, also, a good, good query practice, as I mentioned earlier, that's compliant with CMS rules and regulations. Um, timing is very critical also. Um, if you can be doing some concurrent reviews and looking at these high-risk diagnoses and communicating with the physician while the patient's still in-house, um, that's, that's a pre-bill and that's really important. One of the things I've done in my past, Mike, is to develop hard stops for these high-risk, high-volume diagnoses. So anytime we had a patient di um, admitted with sepsis, we, we just did a hard stop before the bill went out and started asking a few questions. Um, early on, uh, about 24 hours um, after admission, we start asking the right questions like, do we have the, uh, the documentation from the physician necessary to prove this case of sepsis? So those are some of the things that you can do. Now, retrospectively, you can also track your queries um, and see what diagnoses might be missing, as well as tracking your denials and what diagnoses that payers are sending denials for. And then, of course, using all of that information might focus your education for coders, for CDI specialists, and for physicians around uh, the results of that information. Laura, what advice do you have for a hospital that has received a payer denial? What should they do after that? Well, Mike, this is really important uh, because I know that there are some people who just never get to um, that pile of denials on their desk. And so knowing in our industry that many of those denials can be overturned if they're reacted to appropriately and timely, it really does need to be a team effort with dedicated team with uninterrupted time. This isn't something that you can multitask with. It really needs to be a focused look at. So I really have a few steps, Mike, that I'll quickly describe. Uh, step one, identify exactly what they're denying and why. Now their letters can be wordy. So you need to have someone who's experienced with reading these letters that can identify quickly exactly what they're denying and why. Step two, you know, review, if they provide you with references in their letter to the official coding guidelines or to the use of the American Hospital uh, Coding Clinic, be sure to check that they're accurate in their description as well as their interpretation of those different resources. Because often in the past I've discovered that maybe the coding clinic they quoted wasn't really relevant to the case they were reviewing. Um, step three, Mike, is as you review the record, counterpoint for point and identify what document was referenced. So be sure you go back in the EMR and if they have referenced something in the progress notes, be sure that you read it for yourself to make sure that what they reviewed and what they put into their letter was complete and is, is present in the medical record. And step four, 
Uh, last but not least, look for supporting documentation in both provider notes and non-provider notes. There are some diagnoses in ICD-10. Coders are allowed to code uh, using non-provider notes, such as nursing notes. So be sure that you're looking at the whole picture. And then, like, also when you write your appeal, it's really important that you go back to your documentation and, and review it uh, thoroughly. Um, ask yourself some questions. Have, is it well documented? Is it consistently documented? Have you met all the criteria to assign the diagnoses? Once you've done that, then you can draft yourself an appeal letter. And in your appeal letter, you should actually re begin by restating the reason for the denial, indicate clearly that you disagree. Uh, then in the next paragraph, counterpoint um, each point that they have made in their denial. Um, say your results of your second review. What did you find? Um, are their references accurate? If not, point those out. And I found it really important to just be very direct and concise in your communication back to them. Um, at the bottom of the letter, I always give a brief summary. And then I always end with a thank you, Mike, because um, I've learned that you get more with honey than vinegar. So that's kind of how I approach writing my appeal letters. Great information, Laura. And of course, we've we've talked uh, just a little bit about some of the things that you covered in an hour-long uh, webinar. So for our audience, if you'd like to uh, watch that webinar, you can head up to Besslar.com, head over to our insights section, click on Revenue Integrity, and you'll see uh, Laura's latest webinar there. I'll also uh, mention that Laura's team can help you with uh, DRG validation, outpatient uh, correct coding, as well as auditing and compliance work. So if you uh, have some questions around any of the things that we've talked about today, uh, would like Laura's team to take a look at how you're doing in, in the coding area, uh, feel free to drop us a line at info at Bessler.com, and we'll make sure to connect you with her. Laura, thanks so much for joining us today on the podcast. You're welcome, Mike. This concludes today's episode of the Hospital Finance Podcast. For show notes and additional resources to help you protect and enhance revenue at your hospital, visit Bessler.com forward slash podcasts. The Hospital Finance Podcast is a production of Bessler. Smart about revenue, tenacious about results.